Amen, amen. You may be seated as you're being seated. If you'll find your Bible, open it up. And we are going to be in Matthew chapter 13 today. Matthew chapter 13, we continue our series on the parables of Jesus that we're entitling His Stories. Around the Banks household, we have a new rehabilitation program. Uh, Whenever one of the children are disobedient, we invite them to go out in the backyard and pull weeds with me. It's amazing how effective that rehabilitation program can be. And so the other day, uh, Karis and I were out there pulling some weeds. And as we were pulling, this, this parable that we're going to look at came to mind. And so I started explaining how... You know, these weeds are kind of like the Christian life and how you have the grass and the weeds and all this and trying to explain deep truths of Scripture. And she kind of looked at me and basically said, huh, you know, I don't get it. And so I decided maybe I don't do a very good job of explaining it. So perhaps we should let Jesus explain it instead of me. So look at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. These are the words of Christ. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. Now, picture the scene. Jesus is talking about a farmer who is trying to grow crops for his family and probably for his livelihood. And so he sows the good seed in the field. But then as night falls... There comes an enemy into the field, and they actually deliberately sow weeds amongst the good crop. A couple years ago, at Auburn University, there was an event that made some national news. They have a tradition there at Auburn University. They have these two large southern oak trees, and they were called Tumor's Corner. And after a big win, it was tradition that they would cover those southern oak trees in teepee. And so they had a a major win in 2011. They had a big come-from-behind win, and they defeated their arch-rival, the University of Alabama, in the Iron Bowl. And it was a big, big day, and the crowd went wild, and everybody was excited. And then during the cover of night, an upset fan from the opposing university came in, and poisoned, deliberately poisoned, the trees. Now, it was heartbreaking. The entire campus was uh, upset. It became a massive story because those trees were very, very important to them. Well, as important as those trees were to the University of Auburn, the crops were even more important to the farmer. In biblical times, you didn't have Kroger. You didn't even have Whataburger. Shudder to think. You didn't have Jerusalem Roadhouse. And so if you wanted to eat, you farmed. You needed that in order to survive. So for someone to come in and deliberately sow weeds within your harvest was an act of terrorism. When Jesus began telling this story, Everybody in the audience could immediately feel the impact of having something like this happen to them. So in verse 26, Jesus continues, When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the landowner's slaves came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? 
Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. Now, I just think that verse 28 deserves a little bit of a soundtrack, you know? An enemy did this. It needs kind of a dun-dun-dun. So, so let's back up, and whenever I, I say that line, you guys be the audience here and be the soundtrack with the dun-dun-dun. You got it? Okay. All right. Master, didn't you sow good seeds in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this. There you go. Now y'all are tracking, all right? So, do you want us to go and gather them up? The slaves asked him. No, he said. When you gather up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. So let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but store the wheat in my barn. Drop down to verse 36. Well, then he dismissed the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples approached him and said, explain the parable of the weeds in the field to us. Now, as I was reading through the story, I I had a question right here. And that is, why didn't Jesus explain the parable to everyone? He taught the parable before the crowd, and yet he didn't explain it until he retreated into the house and to explained it to a much smaller group of people. And this is a repeated event throughout the Gospels. Jesus will teach a parable, and then he will explain it in private. Well, a couple of answers. Number one, the parables were actually a sign of, of the Messiah. If you look back to verse 35, you'll see where the scriptures say, I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, this was a quote from Psalm 78, 2. And so prophetic prophetic thought was that the Messiah would actually explain spiritual truths in parables. And so a lot of us never really necessarily got our minds around this, but one of the signs that Jesus was the Son of God, the Christ, was that he taught in parables. But I think there's also a a second reason. Earlier in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus had told his followers, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. Now, I'll refrain from detail here, but dogs and pigs in Jesus' days were often used as euphemisms for certain sexual depravity. And Jesus understood that it was possible for a person to have run so far from God that their heart was hardened towards the gospel. And so it wouldn't really matter what he said, they, they would not hear. The Holy Spirit was no longer really convicting, and, and they, had, they had built a wall between them and God. And if he were to say something, they would not hear it. And I think sometimes we, we as Christians really need to come to grips with this. First of all, uh, it's not your job to save people. You can't argue people into heaven. You can't convince them. Uh, you, you share the gospel message. And you have to let the Holy Spirit of God soften people's hearts and open their ears. And there are some that are out there that no matter what you say, they're not going to listen. 
Their ears have been hardened. They do not hear. And in fact, there's some out there that if you talk about Jesus, that they will probably respond to you in a vulgar way, in an insulting way. They have become like the dogs or the pigs that Jesus mentioned to, that if you take the pearls of Scripture and throw them to them, they will just simply trample them and destroy them. Well, in verse 37, Jesus replied, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. So here Jesus begins explaining to us the parable. He basically says, okay, I'm the farmer in the parable. I'm the one who is sowing the good seed. The field is the world. Now, importantly, Jesus here is talking about the field in terms of the earthly world, planet earth, not the heavenly world. And so Jesus is spreading the seed in the world. Now, here's where some people get off track on this parable. Jesus says the good seed in this particular parable are actually people. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The men and women who are genuine followers of Christ, that's who Jesus is describing when he talks about the seed. He continues in verse 38. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So again, in this parable, the weeds are actually people. And they are people that the evil one has planted into your life, and in some cases into the church, into the world in which we live. These are these individuals that Their mind has been turned over towards that which is evil, and they live amongst God's people. It might be the girl at work that flirts with you, that sends you texts, that invites you into a relationship. And if you were to follow her, it will destroy your marriage. It will wound the children that call you dad. It might be a friend from high school who doesn't respect your faith. And every time you talk about your love for God, they subtly take jabs at you. It might be a parent that whenever their child comes home from camp and their child says, I'm all in for God, and their child is really excited about the things of the Lord, the parent tries to quench the Holy Spirit and say, hey, don't don't quite take this stuff this seriously. It might be the cultural Christian who's gone to church for a long time. I mean, after all, we're Texans, and Texans go to church, and we love God, and we love country. There's a lot of folks that might go to church because they are cultural Christians. It's just what what you're supposed to do where we live. And so you're really into the friendships, and you enjoy the activities, and you enjoy the laughter, but you're not really into Jesus. You're a weed in the midst of God's people. Now, it's also probably fitting to say that this could apply to uh, the, own, the, the battle that goes on within each of us as well. That battle between what the New Testament describes as the flesh and the spirit, where on one hand you have your genuine desire to follow God, and on the other hand you have your fleshly will, your sinful nature that continues to struggle against 
that spiritual call. And I think each of us understand that. Each of us battle that. Well, Jesus continues in his explaining the parable. He says the harvest is at the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. And therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Now, I have another question as I was journeying through this parable. Lord, why don't you just go ahead and pull the weeds today? Okay, if, if the sons of God are, are the harvest or are the, are the good seed and, and the sons of the devil are the, the weeds, why don't you just go ahead and pull the weeds so that we do not have to go through this? Now, the answer to this, according to the parable, is it's not yet harvest time. The day of harvest has not yet come. Now, this parable actually speaks to one of the biggest philosophical questions that exist. Philosophers call it theodicy. It goes something like this. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then why doesn't he eliminate evil? And frequently they'll pose that question towards Christians saying, okay, you say your God is all-powerful and all-knowing, so there's injustice in this world, there's a lot of suffering, there is perversion, there is evil, so why doesn't your God do something about this evil? Maybe he's not all-powerful, maybe he's not all-knowing. Now I would say whenever we come across this subject that there is a, uh, there's, there's a reminder for each of us. It's really easy for us to think of evil purely in the terms of external. That evil is something that is out there. So whenever we think of ISIS, that's evil. Whenever we think of this young man that came into the prayer meeting in South Carolina and shot nine people, we think to to ourselves, that's evil. But now the Bible also teaches us that Evil is found in the sin that is within each of us. And the scriptures teach us that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so we also need to think of sin, our evil, as something that is within. You say, but, but I'm not that bad, okay? I, I'm not as bad as those guys. Well, okay, maybe you, you're not. But each of us still have sin within us and is sin Evil. That's a question. Is sin evil? Yeah. When we rebel against God, whenever we get caught up in the tentacles of pride and lust and selfishness, and we do that which is wrong, it's evil. And the scriptures say all of us have sin in our hearts. So you can't think about this in purely quantitative terms because just because this person might do what you consider to be more evil than you do, I mean, you you still both have evil. Now, here's my point. If God is going to destroy all evil, he'd have to destroy you too. I don't want that. Well, thankfully, he has made a way for us to be righteous in his eyes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in Christ, God doesn't see us as evil. He doesn't see us in our sin, but he sees us as righteous because he looks at us, he knows us, he relates to us through the goodness of his Son. Second Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, 
not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, that particular passage is dealing with the harvest time, whenever the Lord comes again, and and he He is waiting. So why is the Lord waiting to restore the broken shalom of creation? Why is he waiting? What's holding him back? Well, he desires to see humanity come to repentance. You say, well, the Scripture talks about a promise. The Lord does not delay His promise. What is the promise that's spoken of there in 2 Peter 3.9? Well, actually, it's a reference to Noah's rainbow. And I would encourage you to remember that the rainbow had a spiritual meaning before it had its current meaning. And in Scripture, the rainbow was a symbol of promise that God's ultimate desire is not for the destruction of humanity, but for the redemption of humanity. And so Jesus reminds us that one day there will be a harvest day. Look at verse 41. He says, The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather from His kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears should listen. The wheat and the weeds, they were planted by different farmers. They were grown in the same field. They probably looked similar. It was probably difficult to tell them apart. But then harvest day came. They grew up. They sprouted, and then it became easier to tell them apart. And when the harvest day came, everything changed. And before we leave this parable, there are six realities that I want to make sure that you download into your consciousness. And I would say that in spiritual terms, these are six hard realities that we need to really wrestle with. The first is this. Until Christ returns, there will be evil and injustice in this world. Until the day that Christ comes back, there will be things that are just wrong, things that are broken. Romans 8 describes the creation, the creative order, as groaning, as a woman in labor over the broken state of creation. There is a lot of evil in this world. You destroy Al-Qaeda, ISIS pops up. There's a lot of things that are just wrong, and it'll be so until Christ returns. Secondly, until you go to heaven, you are going to wrestle with your sin nature. Even as a believer, you're going to find yourself wrestling with your sin nature. Now, that doesn't mean that we minimize sin, but it does mean that there's going to be this battle within you. Are you going to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, or are you going to listen to the voice of the evil one? And there will be this wrestling that takes place. Thirdly, there will be weeds in the church too. There will be weeds in the church too. Now I know that um, some of you that I'm talking to throughout your life, you've been hurt in church. And I'm sorry. There are times whenever people within the church do things that are simply not right. 
There are times whenever people within the church teach things that are not biblical or live in ways that are not biblical and it hurts people. And a lot of times it's very difficult to tell the weeds from the grass. (laughs) You find that out in your own backyard, don't you? (laughs) You mow it down short and your backyard can be full of weeds, but it looks beautiful, right? But then it grows up and it sprouts and then you begin to see the difference. And there's going to be weeds that sits on the pews with us. There's going to be weeds that masquerades as Christian. It's a reality. Fourth, there will be people that do not like you simply because you love Jesus. Come to grips with that. The fact that you love Jesus is not going to endear you with all of humanity. There's going to be some folks that just don't like you for no other reason at all except for you're a Christian. Number five, God is in control. One of the certainties of the story is that the harvest is coming. Again, back to Romans 8, where the creation is groaning in labor, the passage ends with, there is a predestined day, a day that God has determined where He will come again. And as you look back over your life, you see that the Holy Spirit has been calling you towards God. And that same Spirit that called you towards God, that is the one that justifies you in Christ and will glorify you on that day of harvest. God's in control. There's this word in Christianity called faith. Anybody ever heard of it? Yeah, it's a big part of it, okay? You can't really, I mean, faith is at the foundational step of being a Christian is a step of faith. And if you want to be a mature Christian, faith is going to have to be a continual step in your life, trusting that God is in control. And sixth, the world is not your home. The world is not your home. Over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of stuff go down. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation, particularly within the Christian community, in reaction to the Supreme Court, a lot of people writing different things. Occasionally, I feel led to write and put something into the community of ideas. I have a website, a real creative website, lashbanks.com. You know, that was, that's the name of it. I was trying to think of something catchy, but you know, couldn't come up with anything. But occasionally, I'll try to write something and, and throw it out there. And So a few days ago, I, I wrote something, and I want to share with you the second half of it. There's so much obsession these days in the world with just accept me as normal. I just want to be normal. I just want to be, I want to be a normal person. And I think sometimes we need to remember that as Christians, we're not normal. We're different. And so, as a graduate of approximately 6,500 Christian worship services and 10,000 sermons, I have an observation. And that is that American Christians have been obsessed with being normal. We desire Jesus, love, grace, and the blessings of the cross, but we have often run from the scorn that accompanies his message. Have we forgotten that Jesus' own culture wanted to kill him? The message of Jesus has always been abnormal. In our quest to be relevant, we have often abandoned our heritage and embraced the superficial. We have tweeted self-help with a twist of Jesus and unfriended the substantive preaching of sacred scripture. We have envisioned church as an amusement park where we ride the Jesus coaster to our preferred destination instead of a community of believers who profess that Jesus is the destination. 
And where has our obsession with normal gotten us? Well, fewer people are now going to church. Fewer people are being baptized. Our cultural voice is on mute. Churches are closing at an alarming pace, and we have a shortage of godly pastors. Meanwhile, our congregants struggle to understand page one truths of Christianity. Things like life is a gift from God, gender is divine design, marriage and family are foundational to society and well-being, sexuality is an expression of biblical marriage, and new life is both the destination of redemption and the act of God's love. So now Christians are being forced to the margins of the discussion. Perhaps we should take a deep breath, familiarize ourselves with our new surroundings, and realize that the margins are our earthly home. Genuine believers in Christ are not normal. We are abnormal. Remember the words of Jesus, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. And remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. As Christians, we have a unique place within the social order. Our faith is anchored in sacred truth. For centuries, millions have lived their lives. They've loved their families and cared for the world, guided by the sacred truths of Scripture. And so we understand that the hundred-year window of earthly life is not the tense of past, present, and future. Our lives are but a vapor, and our future is with Christ in eternity. The cross is a place where the normal become abnormal, and heaven is a place where the abnormal become normal. I've made a decision in my life. I don't want to be normal. I want to be abnormal. I want to be a weirdo for Jesus, I guess, with the realization that Eternity is a real place. I'm trying to explain this best I can. I, I've come to this understanding that if, if we don't have a concept of life that goes beyond earth, it's very, very difficult to grow as a spiritual person. Because you're going to measure all your spirituality in temporal means. And if you think about it, spiritual growth is beyond the temporal. So for you to really grow as a spiritual person, you have to begin to understand that when it comes to time, your past is anchored in 6,000 years of sacred truth. Your present is lived out within this window of time that we call our lives, but your future is eternal with Christ. And so when you begin to see your life and your world in that way, a lot of people are going to think that you're abnormal but I think you'll find that it feels oh so normal when your identity is found in Christ because that's where you'll find the true delights of life when you come alive spiritually and you begin finding yourself in Him. Would you be so kind as to stand with me please as we come to a time of commitment?
I'm here at the front. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, encourage you in, it's always my joy to do so. The band will come and lead us in in a hymn. Father, I thank you for this congregation, and I, I pray that they might gain a glimpse of your love for them. I pray that we might realize just how deep your care is, and that we might find rest in that. I pray, Lord, that we will be the people that you've called us to be, and help us, Lord, to realize that that means we will be different than a lot of people. Because we're followers of Christ. So help us, Lord, to embrace that. Help us, Lord, to realize that we will spend our years living in an imperfect world, but that the harvest day is coming and that we have eternity with you. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that you do give us today. And help us to be salt and light that reach out to people in need and care about you. Help us, Lord, to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul to love the one another's of our lives, and to love others. And may you give us the joy of seeing people come alive in you and become believers in you. In Jesus' name, amen.